Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. Psalms, and um, I'm, I'm of a certain age where uh, I used to get a magazine called Smash Hits um, back in the day. So if you if you're aware of what Smash Hits is, could you just give me a wave, please? Basically, everybody over thirty, everybody under thirty is like, what on earth is that? Smash Hits was a magazine that you'd get every week, and in it would have you'd have um, the lyrics of some of the top forty songs. And um, I don't know about you, but when, when you hear a song, it's emotive, isn't it? The, the words and the lyrics and the poetry tied to the music and the way that it's sung and the way that it's put together and whether it's uh, somebody rocking out, whether it's a ballad or whether it's something in between, all of those things tie together to really make that impacting. But I remember walking through Merthyr Town Centre down the precinct after I've been to, uh, to Smith's to buy my copy of, of um, Smash Hits and reading the lyrics of China in Your Hands by Tapau. <laughs> and Carol Decker really belts that song out. But as I was reading it, I just thought, it's all a bit flat. Don't push too hard. Your dreams are China in your hands. And I just thought, it just lacked something as I just read the words on a page. And you know what? When we, when we look at the book of Psalms, each of these Psalms is a song. When they were originally written, they were written to be sung to music. Yeah. And what we, uh, what we miss when we, when we read Psalms is that whole power of it being backed by music and melody and a song and, and, and a way to be sung and, and, and the tempo of it all. And uh, I, I really believe, one thing I want to say is this, we need to sing our Psalms. Yeah. We don't need to write more songs sometimes lyrically, we need to add music to what's already been written for us. And one of the things I'm going to throw out to the musicians and, those, and the worship team and everybody else, let's put some music to some psalms that really catch our hearts over these coming months so that we sing them to the Lord and we sing them over one another. The first slide, if we could put that up, please. Uh, it's the next one, I should say. And the next one again. We're going to do an introduction to psalms. And um, we're going to look at the, the book as a whole. 150 psalms, 150 songs that are recorded for us. And they're poetic prayers, they're poetic petitions, they're poetic praise, and they're poetic prophecy. And uh, there are different types of psalms. Some are liturgies, which means they were sung at special feasts and special occasions, special times of the year. Some of them are laments. You read them and you think, man, this person's seriously in trouble. They're seriously perplexed. They're seriously sad and, and sorrowful. You know, God isn't afraid to hear our complaints. He's not afraid to hear of what's going on in our lives and our crying out to him. He's not afraid of those things. He already knows. But what he does want is to make sure that we stick around to hear his answer. There are lessons in here. Some of the Psalms actually teach us um, very uh, real truths and practical ways of of living. Some of them are are basically how to find life and, and express the love of God. 
Long time before Sting sang about every move you make, I'll be watching you, the psalmist was writing about a, a servant girl watching her mistress for that move that she makes of her hand. A long time before Diana Ross and Lionel Richie were singing about endless love, Psalm 118 talks about his faithful love endures forever. Long time before the Beatles shouted, help, David in Psalm 86.1 says, Lord, help! Not I need somebody, I need you. And all of these are in, a, in this incredible book for us to discover and explore and find out more about. And um, as we read through Psalms, and as you will have read through Psalms, in fact, as you read through Job and as you read through Psalms and Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, you'll see that these are our poetic books in the Old Testament. They're, the, they're called the books of experience. It means that they're describing for us people's real genuine life experience and their relationship to God in that. And men and women who are saying, God, I can't live without you. God, I'm facing these challenges, or this is great and it's because of you, or this is difficult, I need you. I'm crying out to you. And when we read through these, you'll, you'll often find, have you noticed, as you read through a psalm, that there's a repetition that takes place in what you read. And that's the style of Hebrew poetry. And I just want us to, to look at some examples of Hebrew poetry in the psalm. So if you turn to Psalm 19, verse 7. See, Hebrew poetry is built on rules where you are building parallels. You're either contrasting parallels, so you're using a picture and you're, um, maybe you're talking about a tree to help build a picture in your mind, and the first line describes something of that tree, and the second line adds to that. It completes it. So if you turn to uh, Psalm 19.7. Sorry, not Psalm. Let's do it. Uh, sorry, Psalm 92.12. Let's do that for a minute. Psalm 92.12, talking about trees. It says, The godly will flourish like palm trees and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon. It's a wonderful picture. And you can see the first line talks about palm trees and the second line adds to it. It, it completes it. It throws more imagery and pictures in to help us understand of the, the way that the righteous will be. We'll be like palm trees. We'll be like cedars of Lebanon, strong and mighty and upstanding and prominent. And then some of the Psalms contrast. So if you turn to Psalm 30, verse 5, and this is often the case, particularly in Proverbs, the contrast between the fool and the righteous, or the wicked and the righteous. This describes something about God's nature, God's character. Psalm 30, verse 5, His anger lasts only for a moment, but His favor lasts a lifetime. Yeah. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. So just turn over to Psalm 32, 10. See the contrast again here between the wicked and those who trust the Lord. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but the unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. There's a wonderful contrasting uh, parallel in uh, Proverbs 14. I know I slipped out of Psalms for a moment, but just to kind of help us understand this, this style of poetry. So, uh, Proverbs 14:11 says this, "The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the godly." will flourish. 
And you've got this picture of a house of the wicked, something that's properly built out of bricks and mortar with foundations that's going to collapse. And yet the flimsiest place you can live, the tent of the righteous, will stay strong. And so we see these contrasting pictures and images. So the Psalms either complete, the second line adds and, re, and, and, and adds to that idea and that picture to complete it, or it will set the, the picture against it and it will give you a contrasting picture. And another way that uh, the Psalms works in this style of poetry is in Psalm 135, verse 15. You don't need to turn there, but this is where it constructs something quite significant for us to read. So Psalm 35, verses 15 to 18, ignore the coloring at the moment on the screen, says this, the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. And the psalmist is writing here, what's he writing about? So right now, idols, false gods, and those who make them and put their trust in them. And he's helping us to understand how futile that is. But you can see here that in this little part of Psalm 135, there's this little chunk of poetry that's meant to be read together, where the first line, line 15 there, and the last line match one another. The idols of nations are silver and gold made by human hands. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The first line and the last line complement one another. They complete one another. And then the second line, verse 16, in that weird pinky color that's supposed to be orange, and the line that starts with no, so you've got the second line, they, and the fifth line, no. They have mouths but cannot speak, nor is there breath in their mouths. He's talking about the mouths. And then the third line and the fourth line, so the eyes line and the they line, they complete one another. They have eyes but cannot see and ears but cannot hear. There's this style of poetry where there's this use of pictures and images and motifs to help us understand something about us, about God, about the world, about his word. How is Western poetry, what are the rules of Western poetry generally based on? Rhyme and rhythm. What happens when you translate a poem that has rhyme and rhythm in English to any other language? You lose it all. It gets completely lost. It works in that language, but it only works in that language. The wonderful wisdom of God is that Hebrew poetry, because it's based on ideas, doesn't matter what language you translate it in, it still packs a punch. It still carries its power. And so that we can read Psalms that were written in Hebrew, read them in Welsh today, as we all do, or read them in English, and it will still carry a powerful message, still build the pictures that the psalmist was wanted to convey thousands of years ago. That's the wisdom of God in the use of this type of poetry. So we're going to do a little bit of an overview. If you go to the next slide, please. So psalms were written over about a thousand years. The first earliest contributor of the psalms is Moses. And Psalm 90 introduces him as the author of the psalm. And there's this wonderful description in my Bible that says... The pr a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Yeah. That will do me. The prayer of Richard, the man of God. But Moses is that first contributor of the Psalms. The main contributor of our Psalms, he contributes almost half of the Psalms, or certainly they're attributed to him, are those of David. Almost half of the Psalms were written by David. But there are others as well who are also significant in writing the Psalms. We've got people like uh, Asaph. We've got the sons of Korah. Solomon himself writes them. 
another minister and musician called Ethan. And it's also thought that Ezra, who was a scribe, who was alive around sort of 400 BC and was there when Israel returned back from Babylonian exile back to the land and he reestablished the word and he pulled together chronicles and, and lots of other things. He also is a contributor to the Psalms, possibly Daniel, because about a third of our Psalms are anonymous. Not quite sure who wrote them. As you find in your Bibles and as we'll read through them, you'll see that the way that they're put together in our Bibles is, is the way that they were gathered together originally in, into five separate books. Books one, two, three, four, and five. And you can see there the, the, uh, the main authors, the main contributors to those psalms. And uh, in many ways, although there are, they are in these books, we're meant to read psalms as a whole. Yeah. Really, they build one big picture yeah. Yeah. of who we are and who God is. If you turn to the next slide, please. Put the next slide up for us. Thank you just want to look at some of the groups of psalms that we find in our Bibles. What psalm is probably one of the most popular psalms that's read, particularly at funerals, but it's, it's one that we use to read to encourage one another? Psalm 23. And that's a great psalm, but you know what? That's the jam in a psalm sandwich. So if you turn to Psalm 22, just read that first line of Psalm 22, please. Psalm 22, verse 1. Those opening words. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? As soon as you read those words, where are you taken? The cross. And this is the first of three Psalms that are this prophetic description, this prophetic telling the story of Jesus' death, of his burial, of his resurrection and ascension. Isn't that amazing? A thousand years before Jesus was even born, the psalmist is prophesying the cross, prophesying his death, and prophesying his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Psalm 22 is all about the cross. Why have you abandoned me? Later on, it talks about his hands being pierced. It talks about him being beaten, about him being mocked. And then you turn to Psalm 23, and, and this is him going through the valley of the shadow of death. But God is there with him leading him through as he goes from the cross and the crook, as in the shepherd's crook, the Lord is my shepherd, into the psalm of the crown, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but verse 7 says this, open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors that the king of glory might enter. It's the return of Christ to heaven in victory after he's conquered sin and death. The psalmist is describing for us in these wonderful songs, something prophetic of the very work of Jesus Christ. I find that really stunning. And then we have the Psalms of the sons of Korah. And um, David was, as you can tell from the fact that he's contributed almost half the Psalms, he was passionate about worship. Wrote, prolifically wrote songs of worship and praise to God. But one of the things he wanted to ensure in the nation of Israel, in, particularly in Jerusalem, around the Ark of the Covenant, was 24-7 worship. And so he had teams of singers and musicians that he gathered together, gathered around him, to make sure that they would, between them, um, continuously have 24-7 praise and worship around the Ark of God. What a great heart he had. And some of these um, who helped him are the sons of Korah, their Asaph, their Ethan, and the wonderfully named He-Man, yeah. master of the universe. No, that's God. 
But Korah, the sons of Korah, Asaph, Ethan, and Heman, you can see them described in, in 1 Chronicles 25 and 26. They were responsible for making sure that praise took place. And they also, unsurprisingly, therefore, contribute to some of the psalms of worship and praise. And when you read about the sons of Korah, you realize that if you, if you know your, your stories and you know back to the times of Moses, that to be called a son of Korah might not be a necessarily good thing. Korah was a Kohathite. Moses and Aaron were Kohathites. Kohathites were part of the tribe of Levi. The Kohathites had a very special job. They had to carry all the furnishings of the tabernacle um, through the wilderness when God called the people to move. They had to be carefully wrapped in, in, in goat skins and cloth. And the Kohathites weren't allowed to physically touch the lampstand or the table or the ark because they would die or any of the cups. So the Levites of Aaron would come and they'd wrap them all up because they were allowed access. And then the Kohathites would be responsible to literally carry the, the furnishings of the tabernacle on their shoulders through the wilderness. You also had the Gershonites and the Merorites, and they carried different parts of the, the tabernacle, the tent, the coverings, and the poles and the posts. But Korah was part of the Kohathites. And what we read about Korah is this. He wasn't very happy with his job. He wasn't very happy that he had this seemingly lowly position. I mean, he had an honored position. He was part of the people that literally carried the incense, the altar of incense that sat in the tabernacle of God. I mean, that's a pretty impressive thing. Carried the Ark of the Covenant through poles that were slid in on their shoulders. You know what? God gives us wonderful things to do, and sometimes we despise them. We don't recognize how privileged we are to serve God and to be part of his holy temple. And Korah had lost sight of that. And you read in number 16 that he rebels against Moses. And he says, I, I, Moses, I feel like you're putting us down. You're giving us jobs that, we're, that, we're not, that are kind of unworthy of us. And so Moses says, fine, you offer some incense before God, and let's see what happens. Korah offers some incense before God. And just before he does, Moses says, if you're not with Korah, everybody back away right now. <laughs> and there's this kind of group of people that step back. And in the middle are 250 people, Korah, some of his family, and those who are backing him up. And they offer incense before God. And what happens? The ground opens up under their feet, and they are swallowed into the earth, and the ground comes back over. Sons of Korah. Sons of the rebellious one. But what we find is this. In, in Numbers 26, it says that the children of Korah weren't judged with Korah. They hadn't rebelled with their father. And later on down the line, seven generations on, a man called Samuel is part of the descendants of Korah, a wonderful prophetic ministry who helps anoint David to be king. And then later on again down that same line, we have the sons of Korah who come and they write these prophetic songs of worship and praise to God. It doesn't matter what your ancestors did. It doesn't matter what happened in your family before you. You and God, that's a clean slate. And you can be those that worship God with complete boldness, complete freedom, regardless of what's gone on before you in your history. And their job was this, to minister and to be guardians of the entrance into the tent of meeting. And they write Psalm 84, verse 10. Turn to Psalm 84, verse 10. This was their job. They were to make sure they were kind of bouncers in the tent of meeting. And so when we read this psalm and we understand a bit of their history and we understand their current role and responsibility now, when we understand those things and we read Psalm 84 verse 10, we get a glimpse of what it is that they're doing. Every day they're doing this. But this is their prayer. A single day in your courts 
is better than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. The sons of Korah wrote that. They, they weren't rebelling. They weren't dismissing their responsibility in their job the way that Korah did. They were saying, God, it's a pleasure to serve you. I'd rather spend a day here just waiting at the door than live, the whole life, live, my, live my whole life in the good life in the houses of the wicked. You know, I, I really pray that our understanding of the Psalms will increase from a superficial reading to actually understanding all of these Psalms. Behind them is a story. You know, every time we come and we worship, all the songs that we sing, behind it is our own story, isn't it? Our own recognition of what God has done for us. It's great that we gather corporately, but you can only worship giving thanks to God for what you know know he's done for you. But also we can be encouraged by the testimony and the worship of others around us as well. And I pray that we'll understand the richness of the story that's behind us and it'll cause us to worship God together and we'll be blessed by the stories of others and that will cause worship to rise in our hearts together as we read through Psalms. We have the sons of Asaph or Asaph who also contributes a number of Psalms and a lot of Asaph's Psalms are very much teaching us about God and about his ways and and calling on God as, as judge overall. If you turn to Psalm 93, please. From Psalm 93 to Psalm 99, we have this wonderful theme. It's this. God, you are king. (laughs) You are sovereign. You are over all. And you know, as we read the Psalms, one of the things that God will do, one of the things the Holy Spirit will love to do is show us just who God is. Just what he's like. You know, when you read through Psalms, one of the things you realize is all these incredible pictures that we talked about, these ideas, these images, they're all there to present something of the true reality of the nature and the character of God himself. So the psalmist will say this, God, you're a fortress. Now, is God literally a fortress? No, he's not, he's not a building somewhere, but he is like a fortress. He's a strong tower. God, you're my son and my shield. God, you're like a mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wing. God, you're mighty. God, you're strong. God, you're my rock of of my salvation. And all of these things describe him as a warrior, a refuge, a provider, a protector, a shepherd, a judge, a teacher, a creator, a redeemer, the king, the deliverer, the mighty warrior. We'll see something of who God is as we read through the Psalms together. Psalm 113, or some say 111, through to 118, and then Psalm 136 are called the Pascal Psalms or the Hallel Psalms, and they're songs of praise that were sung, particularly at special feasts. The Israelites had three particular feasts that they celebrated through the year. So around March, April time, they had the Feast of Passover. What was the Feast of Passover to remember? When God had delivered them from Egypt because a lamb was killed. And the blood was painted and the angel of death passed over and they weren't judged by God. They they survived the judgment of the angel of death and they escaped and they left slavery behind them. And where does Passover find its fulfillment? In the death of Jesus Christ. He's the, the lamb who was slain. And then just a little while after that, about 50 days after that, is the Passover feast. And the Passover feast was there to give thanks to God for giving them the law. That when Moses ascended the mountain, he came back down with the law. And it was to remind themselves of that. And it was also to remind themselves of the first fruits that they had. Because at that time of the year, they'd get the, the initial crop of barley and some of the wheat would come through. And they would take their sheaves 
of barley and wheat, and they do a wave offering as part of this feast, Feast of Pentecost. And they say, thank you, Lord, for this first bit. Thank you that there's going to be more when it comes to September, the big harvest. And where is Pentecost fulfilled for us? The disciples are in the upper room, and the Spirit of God comes after Jesus has ascended to heaven, and they pour out onto the streets, and 3,000 are saved that day. They were the first fruits of this incredible in-ushering of a harvest that's going to take place. And then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place in September, shortly after the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, where they remembered that they wandered through the wilderness, but now they lived in homes, and God had provided them with their own harvest that they could enjoy, the great harvest. And they sang these songs at these times of year. Every time they met, they would sing these songs. At the Passover feast, they would sing Psalms 113 through to 118. So when we read the story of Jesus enjoying, the, or enjoying, spending the Last Supper with his disciples, and it says they left and they sang hymns as they went to the Mount of Olives, we know what Psalms they were singing. Psalm 113 to 118. And they're Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanks, Psalms that declare hallelujah. Turn to Psalm 120, and for these next 15 Psalms are called the, the Psalms of Ascent. And during these special feasts, there were 15 steps up to the temple. And as they got to each step, they would stop and they would sing a psalm. And then they'd go to the next step and they'd sing a psalm. I think it takes a while for us to get into the building. It would have taken them a really long time. The songs of ascent. But these are songs of hope and songs of praise. Psalm 119. Do you know what we've given, in our grace, we've given, us, given everybody a whole week to read Psalm 119. Because Psalm 119 is actually 22 stanzas, 22 poems that all describe something about the Word of God. Yeah. Written possibly by David, possibly by Ezra, even maybe by Daniel. Nobody quite knows. And then the last Psalms that we have, the last five Psalms are just, are just called, they just say, praise the Lord. And you'll see that at the start, every one begins with that same yeah. little refrain. Psalm 134, uh, sorry, 145 146, sorry, says, praise the Lord. 147, praise the Lord. They're psalms of praise. And it's to, um, the reason I'm, I'm pointing this out is to, is to say all of these psalms describe something different. Don't, um, let's not switch off to any of the psalms because it doesn't quite fit in with where we're at. But allow the Holy Spirit to direct us and teach yeah. us. You know, I said that the psalms are, are, are tied in with a story. If you go to the next slide please. Um, you'll see this often, and, and even in the beginning of some of the Psalms, the, the, the story of what David is going through is literally referenced prior to the Psalm being written. But sometimes it's helpful to see where David was at when he's writing the Psalm. That he defeated Goliath in, in 1 Samuel 17, and so he's celebrating the power and the victory of God over his enemies. He's fleeing from his enemies in Saul. He's hiding in the cave of Adullam. In Psalm 51, it's his psalm of repentance after Nathan the prophet has challenged him for his sin of adultery and murder. And he comes before God with this open-hearted, full repentance before God. Psalm 3 relates to the time when David is fleeing for his own life from his very own son Absalom, who's trying to kill him. You know what? We may have gone through some difficult times in our life, when we read the word and we understand the stories behind these things, we recognize these people went through some seriously difficult things to, to be sought to be killed by your own son that you, that you love. 
to have sinned and to have fallen morally but, and to be challenged, but to know that there's hope for us, that there's repentance, that God will restore us. All of these things are helpful for us to learn about our relationship with God, who God is and who we are. Psalms of Solomon and the dedication of the temple. The next three slides are just to describe something as well about the, prof- the prophetic nature of the Psalms, the description of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to look at all these individually. But it describes already in advance. You know, when Jesus came, he fulfilled all of these prophetic utterings. We can get these sent out to you if you'd like the slides, by the way. The fact that he spoke in parables, the fact that children worshipped and praised him, the fact that he was betrayed by one of his closest and dearest friends. If you go to the next slide. The, the very specific literal description of the prophetic things, that, um, prophetic declaration of what happened to him, though outside of his power, if you like, physically, but were declaring something of, of the fact that this is the Messiah, that he was given vinegar to drink, that his hands and his feet were pierced, that he was mocked by others, they gambled for his clothes, forsaken by God, and his prayer for his enemies, even though they hated him. And then the next one, please, about his victory, about his resurrection and his ascension and his glory and his, and his power and his majesty and that his throne is eternal and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, the psalm that's quoted most in the New Testament is Psalm 110, where it's about him being seated in authority at the right hand of the Father. There's such a richness for us in this wonderful book as we read through it together over the next few months. So what I'd like us to do is, just for a couple of minutes, um, I'd like us to look at Psalm 1 together. Okay? I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time doing this, but if, you, if you'd like a piece of paper or a pen just to write down some notes, if you'd raise your hand, please. We've got some pen and paper, because I'd like each one of us to individually read through Psalm 1. It's only six verses a couple of times, and just begin to read a psalm and begin to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit and and ask him to show us something, even now this morning or this afternoon as it is now, about something that he wants to speak to us about directly from the psalms. So if you've got a a piece of paper and a pen, great. If you'd like one, if you raise your hand, we'll make sure that you get a a piece of paper. Mike, would you mind, and Adam, would you mind just handing out some pens and paper too? Sarah's got them here. Thank you. Lord, we want to thank you for your word, and we thank you for this wonderful book. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, for each one of us, that as we read this one psalm together, the Holy Spirit, that you will speak to each one of us. That you'll begin to just open something new, something fresh. If this is the first time we're reading this wonderful psalm, or if it's the 3,000th time, that you would just open something new and fresh for us today. From this wonderful psalm, we pray, Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes to read through the psalm a few times and, and just begin to ask this question. Who and what is this psalm about? What is the psalmist wanting to convey? And most importantly of all, what does God want you to, to take practically from this psalm today? So I'm going to let you just do that in peace for a few minutes. And I'm just going to share a few things in closing from Psalm 1. Okay, I don't want to cut across if you're in the middle of writing something. Feel free to scribble down that last thought. And you know, the, to approach each psalm, not, not seeing it as, a, as something to get through, to be 
to be on, on time with the schedule, but to see it as something where God wants to speak to us is, will be really helpful for us. And to come back to the psalm, and, and you can already say I've read Psalm 1 now, look. I've only got 10 more psalms this week to read, so. But it's, um, but, but as, uh, can I encourage us in the groups this week that as we gather together, and even over coffee, anything that you feel, that really spoke to me this morning. I'd never seen that before, that we start to talk to one another about what God is saying to us through his word and through these psalms. And the wonderful thing is, because we'll be reading them together, there'll be an echoing, and, and it will pull something else out of that other person or they'll agree with that or they'll see that or will be another dimension that will be added as we talk about this, the, these wonderful songs together. But the first question I, I often think about when I read the psalm is, who is this about? What's, it, what, what's the psalmist trying to say? And for me, as I've read this, I think this is about the righteous and the wicked. This is about the Lord and his word. And, it's, it, and for me, Psalm 1 is a wonderful start and introduction to the Psalms because so much of Psalms is ultimately that. It's about those who live right and those who live wickedly. It's about God himself. It's about his word. And it's about the outcome of whether we trust in God or not, i.e., life or death. And it's, it's, it's kind of there for us in a nutshell in Psalm 1, described for us wonderfully and succinctly and, and, and beautifully. And as, I, as I'm reading it, I love the fact that star, Psalms begins, certainly in the New American Standard Version, it says this, how blessed. I love an introduction to a book that says that. In the New Living Translation, it says, oh, the joys. Wonderful. And you know what? That's what God wants us to get from this, is to understand the blessings that he has for us, the joy that he has for us, the delight that he wants us to find in this wonderful book. Oh, the joys. And as I, as I read through this, and, I, and I, I've spent more time than, than I've allowed you this morning, so I, forgive me for that, but I, I kind of three, I, I saw there's, there's probably three sections here for me. There's, there's, there's three contrasts. Verse one and two, verse three and four, and verse five and six, these, these sets of contrasts. And verse one and two for me contrast the decisions not to do and the decisions to take, to do what not to do and what to do. And we know that he's encouraged not to do certain things and that he's blessed because he does certain things. And the wonderful thing is we are free, but we're free to choose not to as well as free to choose to do. And then the second contrast that I see is the contrast of the outcome in life depending on what we do and don't do. That being of being fruitful or being, well, chaff (laughs) and then the last contrast the contrast not just in the outcome in life but the outcome in eternity verses five and six are the eternal outcome of decisions and choices that we make now today impact eternity not just tomorrow but eternity and God wanting us to be understanding of and have an eternal mindset in all that we do decisions that we make today and I as I said already I love this description how blessed And in in the New American Standard Version, it says this, How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. And I talked earlier about um, a kind of a building, if you like, up of parallels, of things that add to the story to help us get a picture of something. And the psalmist says, firstly, this, It's better to not what in the counsel of the wicked? To not follow or walk. You know, if I, if, Richard, would you just come to the front for me a minute? 
Now, this is, this is so far from the truth, I, I can't tell you, but, but Rich is going to be wicked, okay, for this, and I'm going to be righteous, and we're walking, and I'm walking with Richard. Now, if Richard says something that I disagree with or I don't like or I think, actually, you know what? No, I can do this. Walk away. Because I'm already walking. But there's this passing relationship that we're beginning to form because we're walking together. Yeah. And the psalmist says, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. But then, he also, but then the next line says this, and don't what? What's happening next? Stand. We're standing. I'm all of a sudden, I'm a bit more comfortable with Richard. I'm, I'm, I'm taking his point of view on board and, and we're standing together. Mm-hmm. And there's this increasing comfort with sin and with evil. And then what does the third line say? Sit. Sitting. We're sitting together. This is where I belong. I'm really at ease now with sin. I'm really at ease with wickedness. I'm really at ease with this person who's not only wicked and evil, but is a scoffer. Is somebody who's literally rebelling against God. And there's this description of a process of sin that the psalmist is warning us against. Thank you, Richard. Go and have a seat again. Let's give this righteous man a round of applause. And for me, it's not only an increasing comfort that the psalmist is writing about, but he moves and he starts to talk firstly. He says about the counsel. That means what I start to think, or if you like, what I start to believe. The counsel of the wicked. And then the, the word path it begins to describe, in, as you look at the original, it's actually where not only do you start to believe, but you start to behave in that way. And, now, and then finally it says this, and then they're sitting in the seat of mockers. Not only do you believe something and you start to behave, but I've said it already, you belong. And there's this process that takes place in us that the psalmist is warning us against. It begins with what you think. It begins with what you believe. Because that will affect how you behave and eventually that will determine where you belong. Saying, guard yourself against those things. I love the practical wisdom of the psalm. And that's just one verse. But he's just clearly saying to us, this is how you should be. This is how a righteous person, he doesn't do those things. So guess what? He's blessed. She's blessed. Full of joy. And then there's this a wonderful description of the law of the Lord and then delighting in it. God wants us to delight in his word, to find delight in it. Not to say, Lord, I need your medicine today. I know it will do me good, Lord, in the end. No. He wants us to delight in his word. Why? Because these are the promises of God. This is the word, this is God-breathed. And as we read the Psalms again, say, Holy Spirit, I'm going to be honest with you. There's no point hiding anything. Sometimes I really don't enjoy reading the Word. Sometimes I don't feel like I get anything out of it. Sometimes it feels like a chore. But I want all of that to change. Please change. As, as I read this Word today, show me something that I can take delight in. Help me to appreciate the Word of God. That's the sort of prayer that God loves to answer. The Holy Spirit jumps at that invitation. And it says this, he delights in the law of God. And the wonderful description of the fact, we talk about the law of the ways, the things that we should do in the light of the word. But you know what? God has also tied himself to his promises. So we can understand this is how I should be, but also this is how I know God will be. Because he's tied himself to his word. And so the promises that he says, I've got to keep them, but God's got to keep his. That's why I can find a delight in the law of the Lord. 
And it doesn't say, and he scans them, or he reads them, or he quickly skips over them. It says he meditates. You can't meditate without reading, but you can read it and not meditate. And that word meditate means to utter and to speak and to keep mulling over and to keep bringing back to mind. It literally means to worry the word. If you worry about something, you look at every angle, every issue, every potential outcome that's negative. Well, do this instead. Worry about what the word of God says and begin to look at all the angles and all the potential outcomes of the promises of God. It will do us so much better than worrying about other things. Worrying what's going to happen on the X Factor or EastEnders. To fill ourselves and delight in the word of God. And then we have this wonderful description in, in verse 3, and, and this, 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 again, this contrast in verses 3 and 4. The contrast between a tree that's planted on a riverbank, bearing fruit in season, and leaves that don't wither, and that being like chaff that's scattered and blown about by the wind. You couldn't get too big a contrast as a picture, could you? A tree that's rooted and mature and leafy and bearing fruit. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. That's a useful thing. That's a wonderful thing. And not only that, but it's fed by streams of water. I mean, this tree is there to last. Versus what? Chaff. Blown about by the wind. What does that do? Gets in your eye. And your eye is watering and you can't see. It gets in your throat and it makes you choke and cough. This complete contrast between the outcome of of a life of somebody who's bedded in the word and caused to live by the way that God wants them to live. They're like a tree planted, bearing fruit in season. You know what? God has fruit for us to produce and he has timings in which he's going to produce it. And sometimes God wants us to mature to a certain point before certain things will come to pass in our lives. We mustn't try and kind of shortcut and short-circuit God's ways. There's fruit to come in season. But there's also always leaves. There's always foliage. There's always life there. And we're rooted and we're strong and we're watered compared to that of the wicked who were blown about like chaff. To meditate on the Lord, to delight in the word of God. We used to sing a song called, Lord, I live by your word. Lord, I live by every word from your mouth. I am like a tree by a stream. I am bearing fruit. My leaf is green. All that I do is prospering. Oh, Lord, I live by your word. It's a Kent Henry song. And again, it's, it's a psalm that's sung, and it stayed with me. Why? Because we've sung it. We need to sing these words of God. We need to sing these songs of praise. And then verses 5 and 6. Not only an outcome in life and a contrast between that, but an outcome in the eternal things. And we go back to walking. We go back to uh, sitting in an assembly. But this time, it's about walking with God. It's about paths of life. It's about sitting in the assembly of the righteous. And God's saying this, you know, we can fit in with the world now or we can choose to stay true to what God says, most likely not fit in now, but find a seat in somewhere that has eternal benefit and blessing. And the psalmist is coming back and saying, "What the decisions that you make now, don't be like the rest of the world. Know what the word says. Know that when you do, you'll be blessed and you'll be a direct contrast to them in life and in eternity, you'll walk on a path with God and you'll be sitting in the assembly of the righteous. What a wonderful psalm. And Lord, my prayer is this, over these coming weeks and months, Lord, let us find the richness of the truth that lies in these wonderful psalms. Lord, I pray that each one of us will see you in new and fresh ways. Lord, let there be fresh revelation for us as we read the word. 
Lord, I proclaim that over these coming weeks and months, people here will see you in a fresh way as their heavenly Father, that will lead to an intimacy of relationship with you, Lord, that will transform their walk in life. I declare, Lord, that over these coming weeks and months, through reading your word and through reading these psalms, by your spirit you'll bring revelation of, of, Lord, who you are as a healer that will cause sickness to no longer be present, not only in the bodies of those who believe it, but, Lord, that they'll bring health to those around them as well in the name of Jesus. Lord, I proclaim, Lord, and prophesy that as we read these words over the coming months, we'll see you in such a a fresh way of how glorious and mighty and majestic and sovereign and and wonderful you are, that, Lord, it will bring us to new levels of praise and worship and depths of prayer and worship that we've never plumbed before as we spend time with you. Lord, I proclaim, Lord, that over these coming weeks and months, that as we see how wonderful you are and how loving you are, that, Lord, it will enhance our love not only for you but for one another as your people and for the world around us. And that, Lord, that we'll see lives touched and transformed as we're moved to compassion because of the Psalms and the words that we've read over this time. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this book. Jesus, I pray, let us see you afresh. Let us love you more than we've ever loved you before. Let us see you in ways we've never seen you before. Let us appreciate you in ways that we haven't done before, Lord. That our devotional lives would be transformed. That our corporate times would be transformed. That our neighborhoods would be transformed. That our schools and workplaces would be transformed. That, Lord, that we would be indelibly marked, Lord, as a people of praise and worship and prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We meet every Sunday at 10.30am in Stony Stanton and 4pm in Tamworth and Market Harbour. Feel free to come and visit us. We'd love to meet you.